This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we're patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what this looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So I've been talking to them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind would be renewed by hope and possibility. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this is Azure, producer of The Slow Work. In this episode, Sandra talks to singer, songwriter, 13-time Dove Award winner, and first-time author, Cindy Morgan. These dear friends discuss Cindy's roots, the work of untangling her own family history, and her personal interest in social justice and the civil rights movement that shaped her journey of writing her new novel, The Year of Jubilee. Cindy also had the unique opportunity to record a soundtrack to accompany the audiobook. And while you'll hear some of the songs in this episode, for the full experience, I encourage you to download The Year of Jubilee and immerse yourself in the stories and songs told in this beautiful work. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Sandra and Cindy Morgan. Hey, Cindy. Thank you so much for joining today. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be here with you, my friend. I was thinking about when I first met you, which I think was a meeting to write songs together. Mm-hmm. And you brought homemade jam. <laughs> That's maybe the only time someone's brought homemade jam to a co-write mm. as a gift for the other writers. Mm. You know, I've listened to your music for years, of course. And I remember singing your songs before I knew you. And then it's just been such a joy to get to know you and to see your work. When you were a kid, did you have a different way of seeing the world? Were you a note taker? Were you one who was like always finger painting or doing something creative as a child? No, it's, uh, I think that all of us who end up, you know, making a living in the arts have probably kind of walked through those years of our childhood and either the ability to express or not to express. And then it, it just finds its way out. But I think in my early childhood, my parents like just entering middle school, moved down um, uh, into this like what we mountain people, my parents are mountain people, would call holler. Is this East Tennessee? Yeah, uh, we moved into this holler in East Tennessee. My parents were the kind of people, they were kind of isolationists. And so it's like, let's find um, the most remote dirt road that no one could possibly find and then go a little farther. And then at the end of that, let's build a house um, <laughs> as my parents. And, but instead of having to build one, they found this little log cabin that the man who we bought it from Bob O'Dell had built. And so I grew up 
in the back of this hauler and I was the baby of the family. So for a lot of my life, I kind of think I had the experience of maybe being an only child. And so Mm. I had a lot of time outside, outdoors, in the woods. And my dad was a musician and a songwriter and my mother was a singer and a songwriter. And so Mm. I definitely feel like I was bathed in music growing up and bathed Mm -hmm. in that process of writing. My parents, uh, neither one of them, you know, made a living doing it, but they had the kind of passion that they could have. I remember just, you know, writing poems and then suddenly that kind of turning into a song. We had this old upright piano and, and that little log cabin and my dad would just listen to me and fall asleep on the couch, you know, while I was playing my pitiful little songs to him. And, um, yeah. <laughs> hearing you share that part of your story, those early formative times, I realized that the times we've rehearsed songs for performance, like played together, I think for you, it seems like chords and structure is secondary to that really deep sense of instinct. And that makes so much sense if both of your parents passed that to you. The real tradition of folk music is is not as prevalent as it once was, but you got to be born into it Mm -hmm. in a way. You just had this experience that I hear that in your music and in the way that you sing. That's really, it's a really beautiful upbringing. I'm I'm very grateful. I mean, I don't know anything different, but I I think I just never had that experience. I didn't have parents that said, what's your plan B? (laughs) There was no plan B. It was like, oh, you're going to do music? Great. You know, I mean, there was just no hesitation. And I don't even know if I really understood how, what a gift that truly was. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember hearing a story about these early years and one of the first times you were on stage and this was also Dolly Parton country Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. songwriter, folk music capital of the world, East Tennessee here. What were some of the first times you were performing on a stage. Speaking of Dolly Parton, a friend of mine entered me in this contest. It was like a mountain music festival (laughs) that Dolly hosted. I did not want to enter because I was convinced that the only people who ever won talent contests (laughs) were uh, cloggers. You know, that (laughs) did you clog and sing (laughs) at the same time? I was like, no, why would we? Like some like pe- the girls will arrive in skirts <laughs> and they're going to clog to Rocky Top and we're going to lose. So why would we do it? So anyway, he did it anyway. And so he entered me. And the irony of it is that mm-hmm. I ended up winning that contest, which was like a, a big mm-hmm. thing in that area. And so 
I got to record with Dolly and work at Dollywood and do a TV show with her. And so really she kind of launched me and I've just so identify with even just her story of, you know, growing up uh, the way she did in a log cabin. And, and I think that, you know, for me, some of the earliest memories were just old country churches. And uh, just my, my mom, who was a gospel singer, and my dad would go and play telly, you know, telecaster for her. And I just remember one one memory in particular about us going to this old country church up in Kentucky where they were both from. And my dad had this carry uh, fender, fender amp. It weighs a ton. Mm-hmm. And he would just carry it in the store to the stage, was in the back of the church. So you could just open the door from the parking lot, walk on the stage, put your amp. Anyway, <laughs> they were singing, and then suddenly a box <laughs> arrives at the front at the altar, and my dad just unplugged his amp and said, Let's go, Lola. Because it was, there were snakes. It was snakes. There were snakes. Oh my gosh. Okay. I just remember well, going, Oh, Wow. All these we don't get to see the snakes. <laughs> no wonder you're a writer. <laughs> you've had, you know, more than a dozen dev awards. Like you've been really successful in the Christian music industry, but thinking about your upbringing and thinking about the blend between gospel music, songwriting, country music, you know, Dollywood and this folk tradition, Mm -hmm. did it feel like there was a dichotomy between sacred and secular music as you were kind of cutting your teeth and figuring out what it, what it was going to be like to be a songwriter? Yeah. I love the roots appellation, you know, with kind of that side plate of gospel. And, and that's what Mm -hmm. my mom's saying, but I loved the lyrics of you know, like folk and Americana and, um, yeah, and I did not grow up with a lot of the, the first CCM artist that I heard was Amy Grant, which I think was probably a lot of people's story, Mm -hmm. you know, but when I did that first record and, and CCM, I'm working three jobs, trying to Mm -hmm. kind of make something happen. I was working at a studio and still working sometimes at Dollywood. They were like, we'd love to offer you a record deal. And it's like, Okay. Uh, I mean, before you really know, you know, before I really knew kind of what kind of music I really wanted to make. And I think that's why those early records, which were like very pop and like really a lot of program dance music, it took me a couple records to go, "Uh uh-oh, I don't think this is legitimate for me. And, um, Hmm. you know, as I've gone on and gotten older, that's why I have returned to that tradition that I heard, you know, in my living room and in those old churches, just the songs and storytelling and uh, organic instruments. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit 
pts.edu slash admit. So the name of our podcast is The Slow Work and writing something like The Year of Jubilee, this book that you have just written, it's a slow work. Is it not to just put something so slow and beautiful together like this novel? Oh my goodness. Could there be anything more appropriate than The Slow Work? (laughs) So I wrote the prologue 17 years ago. Hmm. I started that. Wow. And so, but like in earnest... I have worked on this book for 10 years and really in earnest for the last five, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's, I did it, you know, when I could. And by the time it was done and accepted by the publisher, I was at like draft 19 and then working with them, I did two more drafts. It, it was a slow work. And Mm -hmm. honestly, emotionally, I did not have the tools that I needed when I started this book to write the whole thing. And so mm-hmm. I think it took all mm-hmm. those years for me to to grow as a person to understand how to mm-hmm. write it. Yeah. It is a story that is fiction, but inevitably, and especially over the months and years that you have been working on this, it is also part of your own story. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And really a part of my whole family story. And um, Mm. I wanted to tell the truth of what happened. But, you know, you you build a world to communicate that truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our mutual friend, Wayne Kirkpatrick, just a creative giant, has just he wrote a couple novels that I had, I had read. They haven't been published yet. And I was asking him, mm-hmm. how do I do this? And he said, just write what's in front of you. And that memory that I just couldn't shake was my first memory as a child, which is the prologue, which is me holding my brother Samuel's rooster up to his hospital window mm-hmm. when he was dying. Yeah. How old were you at that time? You were three and a half. Yeah. Wow. Three and a half. Yeah. And you know how that casts your life in a kind of a direction. Mm -hmm. For sure. I believe that God doesn't waste any sorrows. He does not Mm. miss or lose track of any of our tears. And I also think we were just talking with friends last night about this. It's like you kind of think... You're processing something, but then over many years, there'll be just like layers where you can't really ask the questions until you're ready to ask the question to Mm -hmm. hear the answer. That's right. And and I think God is really patient in that work, which Mm is uh, our creative output mirrors that. But what's really going on beneath it is that God is working out that loss in your life. Mm -hmm. And it's like that faithful, slow work beneath the other work, you know? Yeah, that's right. And I think that 
one of the ways that I, I think I saw that slow work was when I was writing Virginia, who is the mother of the protagonist, Grace. And I just didn't understand her. You know, I, it took me a while to really understand her. Mm-hmm. And I think to understand someone, I think about that, that note that Mr. Rogers carried around in his pocket, that quote mm-hmm. from a social worker, once you know their story, yeah. there isn't anyone you can't love. And I think I had to retroactively forgive Virginia for all the things I knew she was going to do and find empathy for her. And, you know, my my own mother and I, you know, in the early years have had a difficult relationship. And I myself personally had to really understand my mother. I had to step outside of my own life, mm-hmm. understand her and her story and her journey. And it really wasn't until I kind of had empathy for her that I was able to then kind of transfer that to Virginia. And, uh, you know, and Virginia definitely is in some ways inspired by my mother and in some ways not at all. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of, a, she, she's an invention in, in many ways. But I learned something from having to be empathetic to her, even though I didn't want to. There's so much revealed in the process of writing and then discovering. And that, you know, the first memory, the early childhood memory that you're describing, the reality of that memory. Have you had to kind of put on like the science uh, research hat at all in writing this novel? Like, especially as it relates to some of that, like early childhood memory stuff? Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I definitely kind of dove into a little bit of that. Does our first memory or our first memories cast our life in a certain direction, the whole nurture nature. But, you know, they say that it definitely uh, can. It just depends on how traumatic or if you have support in the process, Mm -hmm. can you process it? And um, I I think about that movie Inside Out, that how Mm -hmm. you've got that happy golden memory of joy yeah. and then sadness just touches it and then it will always have that blue hue around it yeah uh-huh i think that's what that did mm. for my life i think i really had a beautiful relationship with my dad and really admired my mom like she was a woman out of her own time she just was she mm. was a woman preacher she was a pentecostal preacher going into these like backwoods church and the men were so infuriated. <laughs> she was, yeah. she was, she was like under the kind of guise of I'm going to sing a couple songs, but she would like preach 20 minutes in between <laughs> the two songs. I'm take the microphone. Totally. And I mean, I, I, I love that about her. I love that she was kind of a empowered woman. And so, but my dad, I think both of them, you know, my dad was a gentler soul. He was a he was a very gentle soul, and so I think the loss that the blue sadness that touched their lives mm-hmm. it impacted them both differently, and um, and I think mm-hmm. it impacts us all mm-hmm. differently. And and I really think it's why I became a writer. Yeah, this whole topic is a hard one to talk about or, or like to put into words because I think. The temptation for me is to fall on one side where you just try to gloss over and make all the memories golden and sunny mm. or 
to, you know, to try to figure out what to do with the more melancholy rememberings of our story. And I guess there's a mystery that somehow God is making something of these sufferings Mm -hmm. and of the sorrows that we experience. I don't know a better word other than to say he's like purifying them over time. There's something happening that is more profound than what I know how to describe where he is by his presence in our lives making something of what happened back there, you know, and we can't understand it. That's right. We don't know why it's Mm -hmm. good. We don't know why that could be beautiful at some point because it doesn't feel like that in the middle. But But we don't have the same understanding yet of some of these things. And I think that you're right, that Pixar story, like the visual aspect of having the blue and the gold color coming together in each one of these memories is, it's really helpful, like visual to imagine, okay, there, there's something happening here. And I don't, this is all I know how to hold right now (laughs) of this story. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's the gift of creativity. It is the gift to be able to process things. Like some people paint or play an instrumental mm-hmm. piece of music yeah. or you know, or they make a beautiful piece of furniture. I mean, there's so many ways to process mm-hmm. what's happened in our lives and it they are all slow works cuz we don't receive those wounds usually it's it's usually not a sudden blow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like it's a lot of times the things that have hurt us that we are struggling through, it is a slow kind of process that it happens, that we kind of have that identity imprinted onto our DNA of those wounds. And, And I love the slow work of just letting God peel back those layers and, yeah. and, and heal every layer. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Jubilee, 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 Oh, 
So why did you choose to set this story in the South during the Civil Rights Movement? Mm -hmm. I know that's a huge question in light of what we're talking about. But were you intentional about wanting to deal with this issue of race and relations and healing around this topic? Yeah, I was. And so for me, I've I've always been a huge admirer of MLK and his work. And I love to research that era of American history just because it's so important what happened and it cost people so much. And the whole concept of the year of Jubilee, my mother has been attending a Jewish Messianic Mm -hmm. congregation for years. And she's always talked about the year of Jubilee and the concept of the prisoners are released and the debts are forgiven and and it's a year to celebrate this newfound freedom. And I also love when a town itself becomes a character in the book, mm-hmm. kind of like Jaber like Crow. Place. Yeah. Yes. And um, I love that. And I thought it would be such a cool thing to combo that concept with a town called Jubilee. And, you know, if you think about when was there ever a time when people were more deserving of being released Mm -hmm. from unjust chains. And and that to me is the civil rights movement. And so I really thought to, to put Grace Mockingbird in this parallel scenario with the Mm -hmm. people in that community and seeing that process of the integration conversation happening through the eyes of a 14 year old girl. Mm -hmm. And she has a teacher uh, Miss Adams, who was inspired by my seventh grade literature teacher, <laughs> Teresa Butler, who was amazing. And he really introduced me to literature and to great poetry. And, you know, back in my seventh grade years. And so this Miss Adams, the the teacher in the year of Jubilee, she, you know, she went to the University of Chicago, which is one of the first universities where you, there were African-American mm, right. professors. And um, so she was kind of, she came from deep Mississippi, which was, you know, one of the most racist places in the South. Her father's a doctor, you know, they've always had servants. And then she comes to this setting and then her eyes are opened. And so she begins to really influence Grace. And so then we see kind of how Grace starts to see the world differently. And her father, who is also a part Native American, sees it differently already because he is a minority living in this small Southern Mm -hmm. town. So it just felt like there were a lot of connecting points to allow Grace not to only be released from her own personal chains, but to be an advocate for that to happen for other people. Yeah, that's, again, there's that theme of writing between truth and fiction, you know, what's actually happening and being able to use all the tools that we have to tell a story that help to to kind of work with those ideas and those places, like our own blind spots, I guess, you know, because this is, mm-hmm. you're exploring this theme in a particular place in the South during a time period that we know a little bit about from the history of of the civil rights movement. And then at the same time, it brings up these questions that are still lingering and these ways that we're still being shaped by it. And I think even that image of like 14, 15 years old, where there's so many new ideas that you're starting to explore Mm -hmm. and there is the possibility that you might think 
differently, you know, that grace is not predetermined to be Virginia. Just That's even right. asking that question, I think, for the reader, I think we get to sit in her place and walk in her shoes and think about, okay, what would we do about this today? Like, how does this change? I don't know. Just the, I think that interplay between truth and fiction is, is a powerful one. And I would guess this is also songwriting too. Have you, have you thought about that a lot over the years or did you approach your songwriting? Was it more personal or more fiction than, than working on a novel like this? You know, I think the best songs that we write are probably always from a personal perspective, Mm -hmm. even if we wrap a little fiction into it to kind of disguise some of the Mm -hmm. obvious connections. Changing some names. Yeah, that's right. Change the names and and the the street (laughs) addresses. Uh. (laughs) Um, But I think that I definitely feel like the storytelling in terms of the plotting and, you know, songs, well, they want us to be done in three minutes and 50, <laughs> three minutes and 50 seconds. We would like for you to take yeah. us on this long and complete journey. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, and that's a tall order, which is why, you know, you try and every word has to really say a lot, but that's the beauty of writing a novel is like instead of three minutes and 50 seconds, you have about 350 pages. And um, I think what I've loved about writing a novel is that you can explore all of these personality types and, and scenarios. And, yeah. that, that you know, like with songwriting, you have to have the hook, you know, the thing that you can yeah. drive everything to. Like and the one line that everybody could come back to and remember and relate to. And yeah. And I mean, not, not everything can drive to one yeah. single oh, thought, you know, not everything is like that. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you've written for film and TV. Like if you write for a scene in a movie, um, are, there's still part of your own personal story that's going into that if the song is going to really land for people that kind of has to be both yeah see I'm really glad that you that you were able to decipher that because that's <laughs> that's that's probably what I was trying to say but I wasn't saying no I, <laughs> but I, yes if I find if I put myself in this if my heart is on the line for this even when you're writing a song from third person narrative if you have empathy for that story mm-hmm. that's being told that you're not even a part of, but you find yourself in that story. I just think it impacts the kind of language you use, the way that you tell that story. And um, in writing, part of my research for writing the part of the story about the civil rights, I read a lot of books, I watched a lot of documentaries, and then I had a lot of conversations with Chris Williamson, who's a pastor. He founded a church here in Nashville called Strong Tower, he and his wife. And I talked to them a long time. They were very open and they, they really shared with me kind of their experience and, and it really opened my eyes. And I had uh, several friends of mine who are who African-American to be my readers. They read kind of the final draft before it went to the final edits because I wanted to make sure, does this feel like what I'm saying is right, you know, is, is it presenting things in the right way? And 
And they came back and they had some thoughts and and they were right. And so, because I wanted to listen, I wanted to hear them. And and so I'm so grateful for their perspective. And one of uh, my good friends that was a reader for me was Linda Randall. And she's had an amazing career Mm -hmm. um, in the kind of Southern gospel and gospel world. And she said, you know, we all need to be having dinner together and having each other over at each other's houses. Like it it just needs to be normal. And we don't realize in how many ways we we have still separated uh, ourselves. That is a slow work of just being intentional and saying, Mm -hmm. I need people in my life that are different from me. Yeah. I'm really excited for this book to come out and something you've held close for such a long time and (laughs) we get to celebrate it and read it with you and relate to these characters. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so Yeah. yeah, grateful to have you today. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much. Among the wildflowers, mushrooms and lilac trees. Among the wildflowers and mushrooms and lilac trees, I shall find my jubilee. And it feel like my time ain't long. Oh, yes, it feel like my time ain't long. I got to make that journey home. And it feels like I'm The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Azure Phelps. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.